On this episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, there's a new FDA-approved pill that helps you lose weight. We've seen some new movies like The Whale, starring Brendan Fraser, and Steven Spielberg's The Fablements. And Kelly Carlin joins us. Not only is she George Carlin's daughter, she is a teacher and a coach and a healer, and the conversation goes deep. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or at stevemason.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob Imrani. Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinsky. Sue Baloo, what's happening? Well, I'm exhausted. Oh, yeah? What'd you do? I didn't really do much. I'm just tired. I hope everything. I hope everything's okay. Do you think you and, should see a doctor about that? Uh, check that well, out. I, you know, it's like you know. I know a lot of people that have gotten COVID said that they're tired a lot. I can't use that as an excuse. I right. haven't gotten COVID. Um, I don't know. I think I, I'm just juggling a lot of stuff. Yes. So I think maybe it's uh, my brain is tired, which is making my body tired. Okay, that's an interesting theory. Have you had? Have you studied it all on this subject? Like, are there doctors that say this can happen? Tired brain equals tired body. I mean, is it, are you just kind of winging the thing? This is just my interpretation. <laughs> okay. I have it. diagnosed myself. <laughs> so um, I, um, I, I wanted to bring up something before you go. I brought up something here. Um, okay. So I have, okay. I talk about my weight a lot. Have you noticed that? You haven't talked about it in a while, but you have in the past. Oh, it's up and it's down. And, you know, and now because, you know, I, I had that RSV thing for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the rule is feed a cold. So I got very well <laughs> fed, right? And so now I'm even afraid to get on the scale because I had lost a lot of weight. I'd gotten down to about 200 from 216. And now I have a feeling I'm creeping back up to 216. Okay. Now, when they say feed a cold, yes, they don't mean donuts. Oh, damn. Well, what have you been feeding yourself? I, I, so I fed myself. By the way, I think this is, I had matzo ball soup, which is delicious. But when okay. you make a matzo ball, isn't it, how do they make the matzo stick together? It's matzo meal. It's a, it's a, but isn't know. it like oil or grease or something that holds the matzo together, the matzo ball? I just know there's matzo meal involved. Okay. I don't, so I don't know anything So I else. ate a lot of matzo ball soup. Okay. Okay. Well, that's I very ate, starchy, right? It's very starchy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I ate a lot of delivery food, including spicy chicken sandwiches from a place called Red Chicks. Because I thought, okay, uh, the spicy, it's very spicy. It's going to burn the cold out of me, right? It, I did the same hot and sour soup. I had a lot of hot and sour soup. But in the end, like I put on my hoodie today, I'm like, holy shit, what happened to me? So now I've discovered that there are 
uh, pills that you can take to make you lose weight. Are you aware of this? Well, yes, I, they've been, ha- the pills to make you lose weight have been around for a long time. But these are different. These are, uh, these are safe ones. Yeah. So there are two pills. There's one called Wagovi. And technically it's not a pill. It's an injection, uh, that you, you get, uh, you give yourself once a week and it causes you to lose weight. And the other one is Ozempic, which technically you have to have type two diabetes for, but a lot <laughs> of celebrities are actually using it. So what do you think of the Wagovi or the Ozempic as like a last stand against middle, uh, age, uh, uh, belly? Well, you know, when you say that there are two pills to lose weight, all I can think about is it sounds like diet matrix. Diet matrix. Yeah. I like that. I don't trust uh, pills like you take a pill to lose weight. I mean, years ago, you know, a lot of people took diet pills and it was speed, basically. Right. But know? these are pharmaceutical. Uh, I mean, actual. They're FDA approved. FDA approved. Uh, 2021 U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved. Uh, both of these pills for weight loss. Okay. Dr. Oz has nothing to do with this. <laughs> well, no, if he did, I would worry. <laughs> uh, but I, do you think it's extreme to, to jump to this right away? Yeah. It's like, wait a minute. You were sick just recently. And how much weight did you gain in a couple of days? It feels like my dad used to walk around like this. He would walk around. I don't think you can see this. He would walk around like this. He'd pat his belly. Yeah. And he'd say, I earned this. Now, I have that kind of belly. I've got an I've earned this belly right now. Okay. So pill, injection, yes, no? I don't know. I, I just don't believe in that kind of stuff. Do you have I no mean, weight I, issues I, I at believe, all? Well, okay. Or listen to this, all right? Okay. So the other day, and I've been, you know, I've been really careful with what I eat. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't eat a lot of fattening stuff. Right. Um. Um, you know, I have protein shakes and, and, uh, I, we, we stopped eating like ice cream and cake Ugh. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, right? I got it. I, we, we don't eat a lot of, we don't, cake. we don't eat a lot of pasta. I got on the scale the other day and it told me that I weighed like 140 something pounds. And I was like, there's definitely something wrong with this scale. Right? Now, is, is there something wrong with the scale or did well, you? Well, Tom said, you know, do you have any weights in the house? And I said, yeah. He says, well, let's take one of the weights sure. and put it on the scale. And, uh, it said that that's what it weighed. It weighed five pounds. He said, so, so there's nothing correct? wrong with this. There's no way. There's no way I could How have gained that much weight. How could you argue with the scale that well, says I am. five pounds I'm is actually, five pounds? I'm actually, um, challenging the scale. <laughs> I'm taking it to scale court. Well, it it told you, as you said, that you weighed 140 something pounds. There's no weight in then, the world. Then I, you argued with it. I, I weighed like 120 something, like you know, like a month ago. Sue, it happens. You know, I'll tell you what'll fix it: the Wagovi uh, or the Ozempic. <laughs> now, I, I would never. I, I don't think I'd ever do that. I, you know, you've got to. I've got to learn to eat more healthy and. Yeah, more and all you that. can't get injections and, no. and take pills. It's well, like, you know, they come up with these uh, quick fix diet remedies and it's like, oh, you don't, you know, it's like, go to the gym, you know, they have like a big red X, you know, right. you, you don't have to do anything healthy to lose weight, you know, just yes. take it. And it's like, shut up. There's something very 
um, suspicious to me about that. I just don't think that those things work. And if they do, then they're damaging something else. Okay. So if I start losing weight, it's because I'm working hard. It's not because I took the pills or the injections. I hope you don't take them. I'm winking at you. Yeah, right. You're <laughs> winking. Yeah, right. Okay. All right. So um, Saturday, I went to go see the whale. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, Is I don't this wanna- like a PGA screening? It was a WGA screening. Okay, got it. And I want to talk about it because, you know, I'm hoping we're going to get people from the show. Yeah. From the movie to be on our show. So I don't want, I figured, you know, we'll talk about it then. And if we don't, then I'll talk about it later. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Give me a, give me an impression or an idea. Um, it's, it's, it's upsetting. You know, it's, it's disturbing. This is Brendan um, Fraser directed by Darren Aronofsky. Right. Um, Samantha Morton is amazing. Um, everybody in it is so good. Right. The acting is great. Um, the writing is great. You know, it's based on a play, which I had no idea. Mm, no. Um, anyway, so, but that's not the story. So after the, after the uh, screening was over, Tom and I uh, walk into the uh, WGA parking lot, into the structure, and we're walking towards our car and I don't know if like Tom started a conversation with this guy who was part of a couple. Um, Tom's like, like the mayor, like I could be walking with him and like, I'll turn around, like, where is he? And he's talking to somebody like yards away from me. So anyway, so he was talking to the guy and then the woman had noticed that I had this bag that I had um, around my, around my shoulder, you know, around my chest basically. And it's a, it's kind of like a fanny pack, but it's like a really cool one. And um, I get compliments on it all the time. Okay. So she wanted to know where I got it. And um, there's no label. And and I I forgot. I know that I got it at a store in New York through my sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know the name of the bag or the name of the store. Okay. So I said, why don't you give me your email? And uh, when I get home, I'll call my sister-in-law. And I'll email you where I got it. Okay. So she's like, oh, wow, that's so nice of you. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, no big deal. You know, it's, it's such a, I, I mean, I don't know if guys do stuff like this, but women do this all the time. Yeah, like, I, I would you, never do this. I, I see like a woman with like a pair of boots that are amazing. I'm like, where'd you get them? And then, you know, I'm obsessed about them until I hear. So, um, so I sent it to her the next, no, I sent it to her actually that, no, the next day. The next day. So, which it would have been Sunday. Mm-hmm. Which yesterday. And I haven't heard back from her. And I'm like, really? Like, I'm, I'm like some stranger who did you like a major solid. Yeah. And you don't respond? So, I'm thinking... I don't, I don't think that she didn't get it. I, you know, in a situation like this, I go from zero to she's a piece of shit for not, (laughs) (laughs) for not responding. Now, she may not have gotten it. She may not have opened it. She may not have recognized the email address and might have gone to spam. Well, she knew my name was Sue because I told her my name was Sue and Sue is in my email. Okay. So if she got an email from someone named Sue that she didn't know, She, I would think that she would put together, oh, this must be the woman that I saw in the parking lot. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't know, you know, yeah, maybe it went in spam. I don't know, but I'm pissed. I'm just so pissed. So should, should you follow, should you send a follow-up email? Well, I'm Just wanted to make sure it. you got my first email. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. So, uh, I'll, I'll probably do it tomorrow if I don't hear from her. Yeah, tomorrow. I mean, I, I don't think it's fair to assume she's a piece of shit. 
<laughs> I, think, I think that is you a lot. You think that's a little too knee, knee jerk on my part? <laughs> I think it really is. Yeah. <laughs> um, I saw a movie this weekend that I thought was really great. It was The Fablements, uh, directed and written by um, Steven Spielberg. And Tony Kushner was the co-writer on that. Um, and have you seen it? I haven't, but I really want to. All I will say, first of all, they're all great. Uh, the kid is great. His name is Gabrielle LaBelle. Uh, he plays, I guess, young Steven Spielberg as a kid. And uh, the mom, Michelle Williams, is mm. fantastic. And Paul Dano is great. And mm-hmm. Judd Hirsch pops in there with her. There's a, uh, uh, there's a surprise cameo I won't tell you about. But I went back and read afterwards. And I, can, I think I can say this without spoiling anything. There was an article about how close this was to Steven Spielberg's actual life. Mm-hmm. And it is exactly like his life. Like it is an autobiographical film. They're saying it's based on his, no, it's exactly his life. Mm. And my feeling walking out of it was as somebody who loves movies Mm -hmm. and clearly Steven Spielberg, Steven Spielberg as a kid does. um, I really, really made me feel good. It's an uplifting, really sweet story. Um, And I think Steven Spielberg, I mean, it's early. I haven't seen all the movies yet, but I can't imagine them not giving St- Steven Spielberg the Oscar for Best Director. Oh wow! Yeah, I uh, I've ever since I I heard about it, I really really want to see it, and it kind of surprised me that it took him this long to make a movie about his life. Yeah, yeah, and I I thought okay, he's taking all kinds of liberties, and that didn't happen, and that didn't. No, it all happened. It all happened. It's fascinating. Well, that's the beauty of when you do a story about your own life. You know, I would think that you would not take liberties. You would do what it what exactly happened. And I wish that a lot of other filmmakers who do make movies that weren't aren't about their life don't take a lot of liberties because like I I don't know if, if we talked about this, but the Marilyn Monroe movie. Oh my God. It was so horrible. It was absolutely awful. This is what's the movie called? Bombshell. No. No, not Bombshell. Uh, uh Blonde. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, look it up. Yeah, I'll look it up while you talk about it. Yeah, so, you know, her life in of, in of itself was so compelling. Right. So to veer off with all of these cockamamie stories and and situations that most likely were not true, you know, because I, I went, I went after I saw the movie, I went online. I was like, was this true? Was that true? Was this true? The movie and, is just called Blonde, by the blonde. way. Blonde. Okay. Yeah. It should have just be called bad. <laughs> I thought it did a disservice to the memory of uh, Marilyn Monroe. I thought it was John Kennedy. John Kennedy. It was just disgusting. I thought it yeah. was a disgusting movie. Yeah, it was. It was offensive. I thought it was vile. Yeah. 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 So you can anyway. catch that on Netflix. If you want, <laughs> it's streaming now. <laughs> if you if, if, if you're now. if you're into st- something like that. After that review. <laughs> All right. Well, our guest today is the daughter of comedy icon George Carlin. In fact, she's an Emmy winner for Outstanding Documentary for George Carlin's American Dream. In her bio, she says she's a thinker, writer, talker, doodler, and she's got a year-end retreat coming up called Light Your Year on Fire. Kelly Carlin joins us. Kelly, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. So we want to talk about your retreat and your more spiritual side and all that stuff, but it's hard not to start with you and and your father. Um, and I I'm, get it. I'll, I'll throw this out just generally. What what was it like growing up with George Carlin as your father? 
<laughs> you know, I wrote a book <laughs> just so I never have to answer that question. Oh, again. no, I did not get a copy of it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and now we have a documentary out. So there you have it. I did see know. the documentary. Yeah, yeah, the documentary is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, the short answer for that is uh, it was wonderful. It was amazing. I mean, he's an amazing human. And, uh, and it was complicated, you know, it was uh, of a particular time and, and my mother had addiction and alcoholism issues and that made it a little more complicated for our little family. Uh, but in general, uh, I'd sign up for it again, you know, it was great. And, and uh, getting to experience uh, all that I got to experience as a kid, you know, being everything from like, the straight my dad when my dad was like the suit and tie guy and he opened for the supremes and got to meet them in vegas and i was a little thing i didn't really quite know what the supremes were uh but they were cool and uh to all the way to you know walking on kent state with him you know a, a couple years after the, the 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 shootings and and then watching all that counterculture stuff and then you know every every era of his career getting to watch him evolve and push the envelope again and again and again as an artist. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, sometimes it's, it's weird, you know, it's weird kind of being a kid of one of those people because it's just your family and it's just your dad. But at the same time, uh, sometimes I go like, wow, my dad was George Carlin. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like at what at what age did you realize um, how who your dad was and and uh, like at what age did you realize how cool he was? Because I, I would think and tell me if I'm wrong, um, you were probably an anomaly amongst your friends that you had this famous father. So what was that like? Well, actually, I grew up on the west side of L.A. and went to all the private schools. So I was a typical child okay. <laughs> at school. <laughs> You know, Carrie Grant's daughter went to school with me and, you know, and I'm sure even in my kindergarten, there were a few celebrities kids, uh, but you know, you're, you're, that's totally off the radar. I think just for anyone, you're kind of aware of what your parents do out in the world, maybe around the age of like six or seven or eight, you know, when you're kind of that first or second grader and they're like, so what's your dad or mom do, you know, and I guess back in the day it was, what was your dad do? Um, so there was awareness of that. Um, but, and, you know, it's just normal, right? Like my dad was gone all the time, like really gone all the time. I have a, what I had all of his stuff after he died, um, that I ended up donating to the National Comedy Center in, in Jamestown, New York. And one of the things he, my dad kept, he was a little bit of a OCD kind of guy, not a hoarder, but kept like the cool stuff. Uh, and he kept all of his calendars. And I was looking at some of those calendars from the 70s and the 80s, uh, but especially the 70s, even the 60s, too. Uh, I would say he was in the 60s and the early 70s. He was probably gone 60 uh, percent, 70 percent of the mm. year from home. So he was an absent father for me in many, many ways. And he would bring home the fun and the candy and the toys and that would drive my mother crazy. Uh, but um, and then as far as the famous thing. I don't know. I think like probably being in New York City and people stopping him on the street and recognizing him, those kind of moments is where you're like, hmm, 
my daddy does something special. (laughs) (laughs) Strangers know who he is. So you made, as you, as you mentioned, uh, the Emmy award-winning documentary, George Carlin's American Dream, and you were producer on The Green Room. You interviewed comedians for a series called On Comedy. For you, what's, what's the most fascinating thing about comedians? Is there a commonality between everybody? Is everybody different? How does that work? Oh, I think the most fascinating things about comedians is they will always be the smartest person in the room, except for maybe Gallagher. God rest his soul. <laughs> Carrot Top. Carrot Top might be smart too. He was just because he was clever. He stu- he yes, he's clever. Out. That's true. That's and I true. love a prop comic. I'm I'm not above a prop comic. I'm okay with that. But uh, Gallagher just wasn't that great. Uh, but no, the smartest person in the room, hands down, they are natural observers and, and thinkers and philosophers. I mean, they're the ones who are watching either the family dynamics or the world dynamics or both. Um, and they're taking notes, you know, they're taking notes on it. And uh, so I, I, that's what I love about comedians uh, because they are just, and they have an opinion about everything. They're the easiest people in the world to interview. They've, mm. they, they could talk for hours about anything. So you just kind of like throw it out there and they just go, it's, it's so lovely and so fun. Um, and, I also think that they are, in a strange way, the philosophers of our time. You know, you know, unless you're an academic philosopher, and if you are, you know, your eyes go cross-eyed trying to, like, read this stuff and figure it out. I remember taking a philosophy course at UCLA and thinking, I'm a smart person. I have no idea what's going on here. <laughs> uh, but they really are. They're trying, they're systems thinkers. They're trying to think, you know, they're trying to see it all and figure it all out. And, um, and even the ones who just talk about their personal stuff, you know, uh, who talk about their relationships and things like that. They're observing their behavior. They're observing all of us. You know, they're like, they're maybe even more than philosophers. They're anthropologists in some Mm. ways. You know, it's funny that you say that because, you know, years ago, um, when I was, I guess I had been doing stand-up for, I don't know, maybe 10 years or whatever. And, uh, you know, I started in New York and then I, you know, really got dig- dug my teeth in when I moved out to L.A. And uh, a group of us would always go to Cantor's. That was the hangout. And a girlfriend of mine that I grew up with that I've known since elementary school was out visiting me. And she came to hang out with me and she was the only non-comic at the table. And we were just like, you know, it was like a night of everyone was Don Rickles. It was like, yeah, nice shirt, you know, and everybody's like (laughs) making fun and joking. And she was so out of the loop. And on the way home, she's like, oh, my God, you guys are just so obnoxious. (laughs) 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 Like she hated being there. It's like so, it wasn't it wasn't fun for her. It was not her joy, which is giving other people shit is such a comic's joy, right? Yeah. Oh my god, that's so funny, Sue. I love that. Yeah. So yeah. so there's a theory, and it sounds like we're gonna be shooting this down, but there's this theory that comedians live this sort of I don't know, tor- tortured, the tortured comics, you know, that idea that uh, that that somehow there's an unhappiness. Now, your dad always seemed very good-natured, but have you run into that, com- comedians being sort of an unhappy bunch at times? Oh, God, I was best friends with Gary Shandling. Mm. <laughs> mm. I, mean, I, I mean, I adore Gary, and 
uh, very neurotic, you know, in his head constantly. Uh, and so I think comedy and learning to laugh at ourselves and things around us is a, is a coping mechanism for sure. I mean, you know, that kind of friend you have that, you know, is always making light of everything and has no depth and has no ability to be self-aware, you know, it, it can go overboard that coping mechanism. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Kevin Pollack did a, a, an interesting documentary about this. It was called Comedy Breeds Tragedy or something like that anyway. And I was, I, I was one of the people interviewed. And that was his thesis, like, is this true kind of a thing? Um, and, you know, is it no surprise that a lot of comics, uh, the really, really good ones are either Jewish, Irish, or Black? Hmm. You know, I mean, like, these are the people that suffered in, on, in the world and on the planet. They were always the oppressed ones. So comedy and humor i think it you know really makes us rise above our circumstance you know and maybe become have a have a more powerful stance over it in some ways so from a psychological point of view um I, I, you know i think i think that's possibly true in some ways i mean my dad he was a latchkey kid he didn't have a father his brother you know was a complicated person they were best best friends his mother was a narcissist uh, my dad was a very pleasant, good person, but that rage on stage, that disdain he had for certain people, that was part of his suffering and his burden that he carried around on the planet, you know, kind of not being happy with his own species. Uh, and then when you met him, he was lovely and kind and generous and would take time to talk to everyone from the homeless guy to the clerk to the fan, like did not matter uh, because he loved people. But he he struggled, you know, and he struggled with depression and addiction also. So, you know, I think there's something to that. Yeah, so, I mean, there's... Go ahead, Sue. Okay. Well, I was just saying, you know, as a, you know, someone who did stand-up for a very long time, um, you know, I I think the idea also that, um, you know, you're up on stage and you're by yourself and it's, it's so personal, you know, um, you're talking to an audience and if they don't like you I mean you you just know you know like <laughs> you, they, you just know and, yeah. and and you know with with I mean I'm sure there's you know solo artists you know musicians um I don't know if I've ever been to a concert where someone maybe not like somebody and didn't applaud I yeah. mean but there are comics that don't get anything yeah. and not only don't get anything they get tortured from from you know hecklers and you suck and you know I mean I I've seen things being thrown at comedians um yeah so I I I kind of see see that part of it too I, and I mm. like you were saying you know there definitely is a lot of depression with comedians and you think of you know there's so many comedians that have committed suicide I mean it's mm -hmm. just yeah. unbelievable you know it's kind of like the you know the sad clown kind of uh yeah. aspect to you know you know, from your uh, website, your bio says that you sometimes wish you were Carol Burnett. Other days, it's Patti Smith, but mostly it's Oprah. So Carol Burnett, Patti Smith, Oprah Winfrey, what makes those the the three legends that you identify with or or want to be like? Well, Carol Burnett, you know, and you can include Lily Tomlin in that. Um, you know, those are the women I grew up with who were doing the funny characters, Lucille Ball, who were able to be uh, beyond the role of the woman in society. They could put on any hat, any character, and um, 
and be ugly. You know, mm. Phyllis Diller talked about how she had to become ugly on stage for for men to take her seriously as a comedian. So she uh, she she made herself uglier than she actually was on stage. Uh, and there's something about that. It's it's a it's a real act of rebellion, but also that ability to be, uh, you know, physical comedy is is just such a great thing. So I, you know, I, I didn't get a chance, a lot of chance to do that in my adult life. I, I wish I was kind of didn't have my stuff together in my 20s. And, and I kind of wish I had because I would have gone that direction as the comedic character character kind of actress. So, you know, th that's that that's that person, Patty Smith for her ability to also just co totally be herself in every situation she is she does not play a role. And she's, you know, a poet and a raw musician and, you know, just puts her feelings out there. And so as a solo artist, that's kind of, uh, you know, and a storyteller, that, that's kind of how, where I like to go. Um, and then the Oprah part, you know, uh, the Oprah part is because she's used her, her influence and her impact to help people feel more comfortable talking about the things that are difficult for us to talk about as families, you know, especially her original show, mm -hmm. you know, and how, you know, everything got talked about on that show. And Phil Donahue was another person in that vein. Sure. And that was such an important, I think, you know, shift for people to start to feel, and we still have such shame about all that kind of stuff, but it's, it's better. And then of course, she's willing to have the conversation about spirituality and seeking and being curious about all of that stuff. And, and finding our way and finding some peace uh, in, in within ourselves. And, and, you know, you know, the old time religion is gone, right? I mean, there, it's still around and people are still a part of it, obviously, but, but, you know, we're all seeking something, you know, I, we're humans. And it's just, I think it's baked into who we are, is we're looking for that thing that's bigger than us, that unitive thing. And, and I think it's really cool that she's used her her huge media empire to really, um, you know, bring that conversation forward. Um, even though, you know, there's a couple of people she brought forward that I don't think are really healthy for our culture, like Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz. She yeah. doesn't think of doctors. She, she yeah. needs to, <laughs> but, but in general, she, you she know, needs, she needs a doctor. She does. She does. Yeah. But in general, you know, she's brought some amazing people that I've studied with and that I've studied and read and stuff into the mainstream. And, and I think that's really cool. So you have a degree in, Jungian archetypal psychology, which I, I also do. No, I, I kidding. thought so. I could feel that. <laughs> Can you see that? <laughs> no, I go to I go to see my shrink. That's my experience. I go twice a month, uh, but that's pretty much my experience of psychology. What is Jungian archetypal psychology? So uh, for idiots, all, for idiots, yeah, for dumb, for, for dumb people, yeah. yeah. So we all know who Sigmund <laughs> Freud is. And Sigmund Freud was the first guy to say, hey, there's this thing called the unconscious. And Freud's theory about the unconscious was it was all about these, um, you know, Oedipus complex and all these ways in which children are attached to their mothers and their fathers and the family dynamics of that. And it was kind of this, um, you know, this kind of sexual theory about these things. Jung was a student of his at the exact same time and was influenced by him like oh there's an unconscious yes you know and they were all kind of studying it back then 
But Jung also had another experience and, and had a different theory. And when, when I studied all this, I realized that everyone's theory just reflected their own neurosis, basically. So if you come up with your own psychology ever, just know it's just a mirror to tell the world how screwed up you actually are. <laughs> uh, but Jung had this like, um, had this experience with dreams and with, um, these kind of waking dreams and he thought he was going um, psychotic like he thought he had schizophrenia and was going psychotic and he ended up walking through all of this on his own and realized that a lot of this stuff came with these themes that we see in the history of mankind of storytelling and myths and things like that and so Jung came up with something called the collective unconscious that we all carry around inside of us these archetypes of the mother and the father and chaos and God and, um, you know, uh, every imaginable, uh, you know, earth and, you know, all the Greek gods and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, he saw all of the religions of the world through that lens and saw people uh, really kind of dealing with two different things, both their personal unconscious through dreams and things like that, um, but also the collective unconscious. And he believed that a person's job in their life was to kind of be a functioning human for most of their life. And then somewhere in midlife, like what happens in the midlife crisis is, wait a minute, I've been working this hard. What does this all mean, right? It's a meaning crisis. And he said that's because people are really in search for a relationship with kind of something that's that's bigger than them call it god or soul or something like that and so he he helped people on the individuation process which is to pull yourself away from your culture and to find your own meaning in life hmm. ultimately so i've read a lot of Thich Nhat Hanh uh, oh, who I, I love, uh, yes. very wise Vietnamese Buddhist monk who just passed away, I think, mm. last year. He did. Um, I read all of his books. Um, so my simple idea, I know you, you, part of your retreat is this idea of Zen. My, my simple idea of Zen is to be unbotherable. Does that sound like I'm on the right track? Tell me what you mean by that. I'm so curious. It sounds interesting. So the idea that the you're not attached to anything so the oh. world sort of your experience sort of passes over you through you with you without you becoming attached to any particular idea or person or situation how's that yeah i think that is i mean that is the that is the unattachment that one wants to attain uh, through Buddhism, and people then say, "Well, then, what's the point? Like, you just you're just going to be like a blank screen all the time. You're not feeling anything, and that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is it's being it's it's knowing that we are the wave, right? We are the wave of life. But when you look at the ocean, and, and even on like on a churning day of the ocean, any droplet of water is might be." A, a participant in the wave, but at the same mm. time, it's ultimately a participant in the ocean. Mm. And so that's ultimately, and that's a, and that is actually a Thich Nhat Hanh metaphor about that. So what that says is that we can be part of the, uh, part of the wave, which is the vicissitudes of life, which is the up and down and the feelings and the sadness and the joy and the anger and all of that. But underneath it all, we know that we are also part of something that is just there and bigger and deeper and is not being 
roiled by the wind and the currents and the tides and things like that. And we are both these things. And so it's remembering that we are both these things. And the thing that's so beautiful about Thich Nhat Hanh's stuff is, you know, he, he, A, he uses incredible metaphors to teach this stuff. He's one of the greatest translator of very, very complicated philosophy into the Western mind. But the, because he introduced this idea of mindfulness, he gave us all a portal into how to create this sense of ease and calm and detachment um, or being unattached really uh, from the daily churning of life, you know, and there's nothing wrong with anger and there's nothing wrong with sadness and there's nothing wrong with excitement and all those emotions. Uh, but when we make those, when they run us, then we are usually suffering in some ways. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like, you know, what the, the promise of Buddhism is, is that, you know, all life is suffering. There's life, there's death, there's difficulty, there's hurt, there's pain, there's sorrow, there's illness, all sorts of things. Um, but the way out of it is becoming, you know, being able to sit on the side of the river, another water metaphor, and mm -hmm. watch it all just go by in some ways. Yeah. So, so I do guess you it's meditate? just being... I was going to ask you, Sue, do you meditate? Oh, yeah, I do. I actually do TM. Oh, fantastic. So I have so much trouble with meditation. I mean, I know the, I, I've read and I know the most successful people tend to practice it. I know it's good for me. But when I sit to meditate, my mind at times is so unsettled. I, I, I find it really hard to stop thinking. Yeah. So here's, I'm just going to save your life right now, Steve. Okay. The whole Got point it. of meditation is not stopping thinking. Mm -hmm. it's not uh, just no, go with not. it just it's, go it, with it yeah it's not see this is what people think people think oh i'm gonna sit down and this thing i'm gonna breathe and da 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 and and suddenly my thoughts are gonna go away uh yeah eventually the more you sit the more you work with the mind and observe the thoughts and observe the feelings they tend to have less of a pull on you and you are more unattached to them and you kind of watch them go by like oh there goes the grocery list oh there goes my argument with my husband last night oh that you know so the key the way i was taught and sharon salzberg does a great job at this too she's another great teacher uh, of buddha's buddhism and meditation is she talks about um just loving what's in the space with you hmm. so so the thought will come up and you'll say, oh, look, oh, look, there it is again, thinking mind. Hmm. And here's the thing, Steve, our brains for survival are wired to scan the horizon for danger constantly. So when your thoughts are like coming a lot or few or whatever, it's just your brain. It's like your brain deciding how dangerous the world is today. So to-do lists, um, knowing a conversation you're going to have or one you just had or something like that, all these kind of things is just the brain, the mind going, all right, let's look out on the horizon, see what we need to deal with, see what we need to deal with. And it's just scanning like a big lighthouse. And hmm. that's its job. And it, will, and it will never stop doing that. And if it does, then you probably are brain dead. Right. Um, so people who reach high levels of samadhi or complete like emptiness of mind you can get there um but it it it's not the point actually 
the more you chase that, the harder it is to just be with what is. Hmm. It is the ultimate Zen Cohen of a thing. And, um, and I work with a, a teacher named Gempo Roshi. Uh, we do something called Big Mind. And, uh, and I do this technique with my clients too, where I can actually walk you into the mind of the Buddha in about 20 minutes. So you can have that sense of non-thinking mind, but it takes a leap. It takes a bit of a leap to get there in that particular process. Um, but the biggest gift you can give yourself is to just befriend your thinking mind. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. Uh, for a period of time, it was up until the pandemic, I would go to this um, center in Long Beach where um, I guess you would call him my spiritual guru. Guru, I guess. Yeah. He's the one who gave me my mantra. Yep. And um, so he would have these Sunday meditations at this um, monastery. And it was really cool because with the com combination of everybody meditating together, I don't reach that the height of that when I do it by myself, but with everybody in the room, I have just been so still and just, I mean, there have been times where I've actually fallen a little bit asleep, you know, but where I have, it's kind of the feeling, I don't know if you guys ever did um, parasailing. No. I did parasailing a long time ago and you get to a certain height where you're just up in the sky so far away from everything that it is the most quiet mm. that I've ever experienced in my life. Mm. And I guess, you know, people use the term Zen. It was so Zen. <laughs> and, 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 and that's the feeling that I've gotten, um, with these groups. Yeah. But I've never ever, uh, I've never been able to achieve that. I'm kind of been chasing that high on my own. I've never gotten it on my own. I, I, I get to a certain place that feels, you know, I don't know, like, you know, am I doing it right? You know, but, yeah. where, but, but I, but I don't, I, I've never achieved it um, like that with the group. It's interesting because the, like I said before, it is in the seeking of it. We are, if you're in seeking mind and you're chasing it or the chasing mind, you will never get there. It is only in non-chasing mind and non-seeking mind. Right. Where you actually just take the cushion and sit and, you know, Sue, there's been actual studies done. There's a place called the Heart Math Institute that's done studies about with brain waves and heart waves. And it's this thing, they called it entrainment. And when you get a group of people who are in that kind of a thing, there is a synchronicity going, a synchronizing going on of brain wave, of, 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 of delta wave that happens in a group. And so that's why group meditation can be super, super powerful. So some people, not not me, some people have a very negative inner dialogue. No, I actually do. All people do. <laughs> yes, Steve. Uh, I All mean a of lot of the, a lot of the time. I, you know, we in fact at the top of the show we, that we recorded just before you, I was talking about how I, I've picked up weight and what am I going to do about this? And I'm obsessed over it. I, I work uh, at ESPN. I do a daily show, and a lot of the time I'll walk out saying that was terrible, and everybody else will say, "No, that was a great show." I I mean. How do you, because I know this is probably one of the things that you 
you talk about in your retreat and in your in your work. How do you deal with that sort of inner dialogue that, I mean, literally it sometimes berates yourself? Yeah, yeah. So in the coaching world, we call that the saboteur or the gremlin. There's different names for it. And, and so the first thing you do is become self-aware of it in the sense that you don't become the victim of it, but you be, you just take a neutral stance and go, just like with the thinking mind when you're meditating, you go, oh, look, look who's in the room, the bully mm. or the shamer, because that's what it is. It's a bully. It's a little bit of a shaming, vo- a lot of shaming voice. It's a, like a bully. And its job, believe it or not, it kind of came on when we were all, uh, came online inside of us when we were all three, four, five, six, and we realized there were rules in the world. And the rules are uh, good boy over here, bad boy over here. And the three, four, five, six-year-old started making a world philosophy and view about what gets me to be good boy and what gets me to be bad boy. And um, if you can imagine a six-year-old being in charge of your worldview at the age of 36, 46, 56, 66, that's, that's what we have. But we don't recognize it as this young one who's got this very black and white view and very catastrophic view of the universe. You know, remember when you were four or five and someone took your toy and you would just fling your body on the floor? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. it was the end of the world. So it was very, mm-hmm. very catastrophic and black and white. And so first of all, knowing that, especially knowing the impact you have, Steve, as who you are in your profession, how good you are at your job, where you are in your job, the career you've had, the feedback you get from others. So this voice is an anomaly. Hmm. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, I don't know if we're allowed to swear on this podcast. Yeah, yeah sure. It's full of shit. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It is literally full of shit, but it is here to keep you safe on some level. But it just has a really, really screwed up idea of, of keeping you safe, what that, what that entails. And so the way I work with my clients is A, self-awareness of the saboteur, recognize it when it comes in, and then really having some compassion for it and be like, you know what? I know, buddy, that you're just here to try to keep me safe. And that you're worried about things. I get that. And I want you to know that it's okay and it's not your job anymore, little four, five, six-year-old Steve, whoever you are, and whatever you know, situation or parent you're we, you know, that voice might be trying to help you please. Mm-hmm. That's no longer here. It's 2022. And you know, I'm speaking of myself, I'm 59 now, and this you know, my parents aren't even alive anymore. Like, this is crazy. So it's about a lot of reality testing with that. And then deciding, all right, so um, if, if I can fire this, this bully, the saboteur from being in charge of this, you know, maybe there's something else that this five-year-old would rather be doing, you know, and let the five-year-old go do what it is, play with its trucks or go take a bike ride or uh, whatever it is. Uh, But Really knowing that it is a coping survival strategy that is like an old tape in the attic that just keeps playing and mm. it's not even necessary anymore. Yeah, you know, I I have, you know, some family drama every now and then. And uh, my husband will overhear me 
speaking to, you know, whether it's my sister or one of my nieces and I'll, I get off the phone and he looks at me and he says, Oh my God. He says, I think you missed your calling like as a therapist or something. And, you know, the thing is, is that I definitely have locked into something with my family, maybe because I've been going through it for so long. Um, there is somewhat something of a sense of humor that I have when I'm giving my two cents. You know, like I have a niece who sometimes um, doesn't think before she does something and then she'll call me up and it's like, oh, I know I shouldn't have. A, and I'll say to her, well, you know what you need? You need a shock collar. <laughs> Every time you think you're going to, you know, you got this impulse to do something, you get a shock, you know, and or I'll say like, you know, whenever you think about doing something, do the exact opposite, you know, <laughs> do, do not follow your instinct. Do not follow <laughs> your you instinct, you know. Um, but then it's like, and you know, I, and I'm not saying that I'm the most grounded person in the world, but I am very aware. And, but there are times where I can't take my own advice. What do you do with that? Oh, such a great question. See, that's our blind spot. That's, we all have a blind spot. And, um, and it is the thing, you know, that's why therapist or a coach or something like that is such a great um, resource in the moment, because sometimes you do need like use our Sue for other people, you are the mirror for them. And you're like, hey, this is, you know, this is what I'm seeing. Do you see that too? And it is really hard to do that for ourselves, especially for the what the, the parts of ourselves that are kind of built on these younger parts of ourselves, like, you know, in, in my terminology, we you know, we in the psychology where we call it a complex, you know, it's kind of we're locked into a way of being or a way of seeing the world, and a way of being in relationship with people. And we could intellectually know it's wrong. We could write a paper about what it is the complex. I mean, this is what therapy getting your master's in therapy is you write, you write papers about these things. And yet, 22 years later, as I am today, I'm dealing with my codependence this year. Like codependence is my big thing again. Another layer off the onion. <laughs> as my friend said the other day, exactly how big is this onion? Because I am tired <laughs> of feeling it. And I'm like, oh my God, is that the greatest name for like a book? How big is this onion? Um, because that next layer of the onion is that blind spot. Is that where we can't take our own advice? Where we can like say, see, and we can see it so clearly for other people. And yet for us, it's like, eh, I, 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 and everyone else around us is going, oh, I can see it in her, you know? <laughs> um, and this is where the sense of humor comes in for ourselves. You know, this is where, I find a sense of humor is one of the greatest things to like really help us stay sane and, and stay humble about things is like, you know what, here I am, I'm 59 and I'm still dealing with my mommy and daddy issues. Like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, instead, instead of beating myself up about it, well, you should know better and you're a life coach and you've had all this training and you're a bit like, no, I'll be doing this till the day I die. There'll be another God damn layer of that onion to peel off. So the question I wanted to ask you, because you talked about having a sense of humor. Now, is it, do you use this in your work and is it case by case? Like, do you have certain clients that, hmm, maybe not open to the sense of humor thing? Um, it, 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 or, or if that's just your style, it's like, 
this is how I do my work. So either you embrace it or you don't. You know, you know, it's interesting. I, um, I don't think I've ever really consciously thought about it as something I use or don't use. I think people who come to me generally know that about me. Either they've read my book or they follow me on social media. Uh, so they, they kind of know that I have that anyway. And then they probably know who my dad is. So they probably know where I come from. Um, and, and, uh, you know, using a sense of humor is an intervention that is, it's, it's all about timing as humor is, right? And um, being able to hold a space that needs to be held in a way that doesn't have sense of humor in it, that might, is, might be a little more precious or precarious in some ways in, in a moment. Um, but also it, it's interesting because I would say most of my clients have a really good sense of humor. Like that's one thing that, that comes out in all of them. Uh, and it's so funny, Sue, that you mentioned this because I do, you know, this is kind of what I struggle with um, or I have in the past. And I'm really kind of starting to bring it together and not struggle with it so much. But I always used to think like I either need to be like Marion Williamson, who by the way has a great sense of humor, um, you know, or, uh, you know, or Carol Burnett, right? Or Lucille Ball, right? And they're these two sides of me. And, and I used to think I had to keep them separate. And I really am seeing that, you know, if you listen to any Ram Dass tapes ever, mm -hmm. Ram Dass is, I think, one of the greatest comedians ever. I mean, the guy is, A, has a total sense of humor about himself. Because he's this like enlightened being, he sees the joke of everything. And, um, and he, he has that point of view and he makes fun of his own ego and his own struggle with it. And, and that's what I tend to do with my work, certainly in my solo show and my writing and my storytelling. You know, I think one of the secret sauces of being a good storyteller and making your story relatable is to make yourself the butt of the joke. And so I think, you know, I'm okay with that. And the first couple, you know, I was a life coach years ago, and then my dad died, and I got into my creative life again and stuff. And then really, the last four years, I've been doing this newer business with it. And I think a part of me was like, oh, I have to be the serious life coach now and everything. <laughs> and now I'm realizing like, oh, God, that's exhausting, because that's not who I am. You know, I am a goofy person. I am silly. Um, and so I, I try to bring my humanity to the space because a that gives other people permission to bring their humanity to it. Um, and I try to use a sense of humor in a way that um, never makes people feel unsafe. I think yeah. that's the most important thing because and I'm doing a project right now I'm doing a podcast, I'm starting to develop it about the use of sense of humor and um, the importance of it in our culture and in our personal lives. And if you notice bullies, one way people bully people is to make other people the butt of the joke. Mm. And then if you notice bullies have no ability to be the butt of the joke. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we've been what we watch one of those in public office pretty <laughs> recently. Uh, hmm. and, it, and it's pretty fascinating. It's a pretty fascinating little psychological dynamic there. So um, I think it's a very good um, assessment of someone's like, health their mental their their ego health their a healthy relationship with their own ego yeah 
So I've done, you've got a retreat coming up that we'll talk about, but I, I wanted to say that I've done, I'm a big believer in the year end retreat. I, I think it's really powerful. I've done a few. I did a yoga retreat uh, in Nicaragua. I did another one in El Salvador for New Year's. I did a 48 hour silent uh, meditative retreat that uh, I did that a couple of times with my minister, uh, Dr. Reverend Michael Beckwith from uh, oh, Agape. Love him. Love him. He's adore the best. him. He's the best. But I find that the end of the year is just, it's a time for reflection. It's a time for an ending and a new beginning. It just seems like a really good time to to do something like the the program you've got going on. Yeah. You know, you're, you're teed up for, you know, the year is saying to you, Hey, let's take stock. You know, I mean, that's where we're at. Right. And, you know, with the calendar change and then there's this other thing, which is the solstice, which is what I love to focus on. And this is how I started doing this about 20 some odd years ago. I got into when I went to my grad school and was studying all of this stuff and got really into all of that. You know, there's this thing about hitting the shortest day of the year. And hmm. you look at these Neolithic humans who built these incredible um, earthen things to honor this particular solstice, which is the day when we start to get a little more light in on the planet. Yeah. And they watched, you know, they observed, they were natural astronomers and all that kind of stuff. There's something so powerful about that, that going into the darkness and then moving towards the light. I mean, the metaphors of this stuff is just so rich, right? So I love the potency of that. I wrote my thesis about Demeter and Persephone, and Persephone was in the underworld, and in the winter, she would have to go down into the underworld and would only come up in the spring. So, you know, all about like what goes on in the depth part of ourself, the, you know, the deepest, the unconscious of ourself. And that's where our imagination is and creativity and potential and all that kind of stuff is. So I started that like 20 years ago. And then I started adding in this little kind of ritual of like taking stock, like really taking stock. It's as a coach and as a person who's been coached for the last, you know, 15 years of my life, you know, it is so important to pause and actually take a moment and look at your life. And, you know, our Mo well, you know, it's been this way forever. It's been this way for a hundred years, ever since like electricity and, you know, <laughs> and the, and the combustion engine has been around. But, you know, there's a pace that modern progress and postmodern life and modern life has that is not human sized and is not human scaled. And humans take time to really digest things and really know things. So before you know it, it's like, oh, it's the new year. Oh, da, 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 da. You know, and we don't even know where we've been, who we've seen, what we've done what we've accomplished. And one of the things that I've, you know, I started working uh, mainly with women four years ago. I now work with both men and women. But what, you know, especially with women, they never really receive or take in and maybe, and probably men don't also, but uh, women t tend to have an issue, a real issue with this, of being able to own their accomplishments. You know, our culture is kind of like pat the man on the back always, you know, but women, it's always like, oh my God, she did something. It's a miracle, <laughs> you know? And so women have an issue with this in particular. Uh, but there is something about stopping and pausing and patting yourself on the back and really getting those accomplishments down. And then also to really honor and acknowledge the things that did not go well, the goals you didn't reach, 
the unexpected losses you had, the the fire, maybe you got fired from a job, maybe you lost a loved one, um, you know, whatever it is, your house burned down, what, but there's, you know, to honor the losses too, because, and really grieving them. So that's, that's part of what we do during my little, and it's just, it's a half, and I love the big longer retreats too. I used to go on a 10 day silent retreat at the end of the year. This is just a little drop in the bucket, half day, you know, an amuse-bouche, we call it, you know, <laughs> where I have people do some prep work and they do, they kind of go through their calendars and their pictures and they kind of get their whole year assessed and they get all the wins and the accomplishments and all the losses and they kind of make a list of all of that. And then once you do all that prep work, you come on in and we spend about four hours together. We break into small groups. We have a discussion about these accomplishments. We get witnessed by others with all of that. We talk about our losses, things like that. Then I do a nice deep dive guided imagery, fun, fun kind of a journey where I take you into your unconscious and into your deep imagination. And we go on a little journey and we meet some people and we meet like a powerful being and they give us a word and they give us some intention and some vision for the new year and we bring it back up. Uh, and then I also talk a little bit about how in the new year, if you're looking to do something big, that's a little out of your a comfort zone or a lot out of your comfort zone, how I in particular have created some structure and support for you to actually move towards that. So there's an opportunity to actually get some extra help. And then we gather, and what I used to do was gather in my little back room here. Sue knows it. She's been here before. Mm -hmm. There's a little back room, and we used to be like 25 of us, and we would all light a candle and say our word. Mm. Um, but now we do this on Zoom. So we light our candle, and we say our word about our intention for the new year. And what's been so great is over the years when I was doing it with friends and now with clients and just people in the public, people the next year will say to me, oh, my year was was joy. And I have to tell you, I actually lived into the word, you know, and it was like, it's so great, you know, to hear stuff like that. So I just love, um, I love, com I love community. I love bringing people to the layer of their life where, you know, where modern life will not invite us into it. You know, modern life wants us to be on, on the treadmill and be on the hamster wheel. I love being the one, the rebel who says, stop, and let's really connect to our mm. bodies and our souls, because we only get, I mean, whether, you, I don't know, some people believe in reincarnation or not, I don't know, we'll know when we get there, that'll yeah. be a fun little discovery, but <laughs> I, all I know is that this one is the only life I have right now, and we don't know how long we're going to be here, so let's make sure that what we're doing every year, uh, that, you know, the majority of it is something that really matters to us. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, and that's 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 the conversation I always want to be having with the world. So the retreat is coming up. It's called Light the Year on Fire. It's Saturday, December 17th from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. So Kelly, what's the best way to get information and to sign up and all that stuff? Um, well, uh, I don't, I have a, I don't have like a URL landing page, but if okay. you go on my Instagram, uh, I'm at Kelly Carlin is here on Instagram. It's in my link tree right now. I can give you a link. Uh, so you can put it in your show notes if you okay. do that for your podcast. Sure. Um, and of course, if you sign, if you go to my website, a little box will jump up and say, sign up for my 
for my mailing list. And if you do that right away, you'll be getting invitations. I've been sending about every two or three days because we're in promo time right now. Hey, here's my event, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And you can certainly do it that way. I'm also on Twitter at Kelly underscore Carlin. And um, I talk about it there and it's in my feed and I'm, I'm putting it up on my feed once a day. Cool. Um, and so, yeah, those are the places you can find out about it. Awesome. Well, I, I want to go full circle on you and ask you one last question. Great. Um, you're, you're working in this, in this world now, teacher and healer and coach. What would your dad say about this direction for your life? Well, I have to tell you, when I graduated from Pacifica Graduate Institute in 2004, uh, my dad could rarely in my life make it to big events in my life. He was always on the road. And he asked me a year ahead, when is your graduation date? And he circled it on the calendar. He made sure nothing was booked that whole weekend. Mm. And he sat there in the audience with my husband and two of my dear friends and just beam, beaming mm. with pride. Mm. Um, he always saw me. He's the one who first told me I was an old soul. He always saw me as the wise one in the family. And um, in my 30s, he even said to me, you know, you were the shaman. You're the shaman of our family. Like he mm. always knew. Our family was always very spiritually guided and always seeking, you know, everyone assumes my dad was an atheist and therefore wasn't a spiritual seeker, but he was very much always curious about this stuff. A big fan of Ram Dass and Alan Watts and all those people. Yeah. Um, so he was thrilled that I was getting my master's in Jungian psychology. And, um, you know, and he, he also saw me getting my life coach certification before he died. I'd, I'd become certified as a life coach and went into a big leadership program with it all. And, um, you know, it's really interesting because one of the things that all this led me to, besides wanting to tell my story to the world, which I had even before my dad had died, and I tell that story in my memoir and stuff, um, but with this documentary that we just did that, that Judd Apatow and Michael Bonfiglio directed, um, you know, I we hired them and I basically just said to them, you know, make it as complex and as innovative as my father. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. You know, Jeb was like, he's afterward, he says to me, I, I was terrified when you said that to me. I don't, I don't know. I didn't know what to do. And, and, and so I didn't have a lot of, I had no hands-on day-to-day shaping of the narrative. When they sent me the rough cut and I realized how much of my story and my, and my telling of the family story was in it, um, and then saw the impact that part of the documentary had on people who watched it. And I think it, was part of the reason that I think it won the Emmy too, was because yeah. it was such an interesting view on things. I knew that that was because of the work I had done and what I had studied as a psychologist and the work I'd done on myself, obviously. And so even though my dad was maybe uncomfortable with that in his own life, he was from a different generation and that wasn't what normally they did. Mm -hmm. um, I think if he understood how much people love him even more now that they know about that part of our story. Um, I think he'd even be more proud of the leadership I took as the shaman of the family Yeah, uh, to tell the heart part of our story, the heart and soul of our story. That's very nice. Well, listen, hmm. uh, love this conversation. 
Um, and, and you're fascinating. And I, I, my inner dialogue is probably going to go easier on me now that, uh, that we've talked to you. <laughs> um, we appreciate, we wish you the very best of, of luck with your, uh, with your retreat. And uh, thank you so much for doing this. We appreciate you coming on. Oh, you guys, I would, I could hang out all night with you guys and every night. So, you know, <laughs> we're just going to have right. to go have drinks later or something. Let's yeah, do it. We're, Let's we're, do ava- it. Well, we're available. <laughs> Excellent. Perfect. <laughs> no, thank you guys so much. This was a lovely conversation and uh, really just uh, warm and fuzzies, all of them here. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's uh, Kelly Carlin and the retreat is coming up. And yeah, I, I you know, I, I, this path, she said, you know, mm-hmm. I, I find myself to be on a spiritual path. I mean, I, I get off, I do some off-roading, you know, like yeah, where I and, get off and, in the weeds. Yeah, yeah and, and you're taking pills to lose weight, <laughs> pills and injections to lose weight. Oh, that's so, you're cutting your spirituality <laughs> with, like, with drugs. <laughs> with drugs, yeah. So, so you don't do the spiritual thing and just lose weight on your own. She actually talked me out of it. That whole conversation <laughs> was like, oh, yeah, you know what? I don't need a pill. I don't need an injection. I'm on the path. I'm on the path. No, that's fat. I love that. I love that kind of conversation. And uh, she's just terrific. Yeah. She's just smart and funny. And, you know, you know, there are people that are in this world that she's in Mm -hmm. that I just haven't really embraced. But when somebody presents it the way she presents it, and I guess I know her, I know her and I know where she comes from. And she's, she's, she's got the whole, she has the whole picture, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And, um, you know, she's, it's, it's not like, um, some snake oil salesperson. She's not preaching. She's not, no, she's not preaching. It's just, it's so human and it, and it comes from somebody who's really done the work. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, she's, she's just a terrific person. Uh, well, listen, uh, we're going to wrap this up. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or at stevemason.com. Thank you very much for listening. We appreciate it. Sue, great seeing you. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast. <laughs>